Daniel chapter 2, verse 1 to 23. This is the word of the Lord, and let us hear it. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Excuse me. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord or ruler, has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with the counsel and wisdom, then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. He changes the the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank You and praise You, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of You. For You have made known to us the King's demands. And there in congregation is the word of the Lord that stands forever. Well, the book of Daniel, as we come to it, and particularly as we're coming now to chapter 2, has uh, a lot of interesting things within it. The book of Daniel is uh, one of those books that can be divided in a number of ways so that we can understand both its flow and its teaching. One of the easiest ways to divide the book of Daniel is to look at the first six chapters uh, as part of the overall history of Daniel and his companions and their time and stay in Babylon. Chapters 1 to 6 cover the nearly 70 years that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah spent in Babylon and and cover that time too where Nebuchadnezzar's world dominance both rises and falls under his grandson Belshazzar and the coming of the Mede-Persian Empire that rises and takes over. And and so chapters 1 to 6 give us very detailed history of life in uh, of a few circumstances of life within Babylon. And then Uh, The second part of that is chapters 7 to 12, which give us, if you will, the theological and spiritual theater that is operating behind those 70 years. What we see in understanding, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6, that Daniel's not wrestling against flesh and blood, like the first six chapters make it seem to be, but is wrestling against Uh, powers and principalities and spiritual hosts of darkness in the heavenlies. And so chapters 7 to 12 bring out that emphasis, the theological and spiritual theater behind the visible and earthly dealings of mankind. And there we see the visions and the prophecies, the coming of kingdoms. And there we see the Lord Himself as well. But there is another division which is hidden from your eyes, from you who are reading the book of Daniel and you have it all translated into English for you. If you were to look at Daniel and you had an understanding of languages, one of the things that you would note here is another hidden uh, uh, division from the reader's view. And that is this. Chapters 2-7 to are written in Aramaic. They're written not in the Hebrew language. They're written in the language of the then known world. Today, English is the number one language that is uh, to be spoken throughout all of the world. Well, back in Daniel's time, it was Aramaic, an ancient world language that uh, was common to all of the nations of the world at that time. And when you see that and you look at chapters 2 to 7, you see that there is in, in, in that Aramaic language a focus on the nations of the world. You see God dealing with the nations through His prophet Daniel, culminating in chapter 7 with the coming of the Son of Man who receives the eternal kingdom of God and establishes it on the earth. And again, when you, when you capture that, God is in chapter 2 to 7 speaking to the nations of the world. 
As much as your kingdoms rise and fall, you need to know there's one kingdom that is eternal and my Son is going to establish it on the earth. And that would have been a message that would have reached to the nations of the world. They would have understood it because of the language it was written in. And that tells us something about God's Word in that way, that He purposes it to be made known to the nations, not hidden from them in His will and purposes concerning His kingdom. And and with that, chapters 1 and then chapters 8 to 12 is written in the Hebrew language. Because the focus there... With that language, the language of God's people, the focus is on God's elect. It is on His church. It is on her continuance throughout the changing kingdoms of this world. That you can be assured, dear people of God, that He has not forgotten you and that you are very much a part of His plans and purposes with the kingdoms of this world. So you see how He speaks to the nations, but He speaks to His people at the same time. And that again should encourage us. Because there's a lot in Daniel that we can relate to to circumstances today. Daniel has all, Our Daniel here has already mentioned about what has gone on in, in Portland and the burning of flags and the burning of Bibles. And thinking we're really going to show that no one is over us and no God is ruling over us. And how do we respond to that? How do we stand in these times when such vitriol is being leveled against not just the authority of the nations of this world, but against God? You see, Daniel speaks to us in these ways. And Daniel 2, the very chapter we're looking at, uh, we're just we're not going to spend a whole lot of time dealing with the details, but, but we're going to look at this in two sermons. It, it presents to us the very exciting message of the kingdom of God that will come and be established on the earth. Which kingdom we heard this morning is what we are longing for. It's that response of the Lord's Prayer that we are to be echoing every time we petition our God, Thy kingdom come. And here in Daniel 2, God shows that it is coming. And God shows that that kingdom will grow, that it will ultimately triumph upon the whole of the earth. And, and in presenting that message, and what we see in, in Daniel 2 is that God is establishing His kingdom not in some mystical, ethereal manner, but He is establishing His kingdom in time and space, and He is utilizing various people to make that truth known. God here is using Nebuchadnezzar to reveal that glory of His kingdom. Now that ought to say something to us. What a strange thing. Why is God using a pagan, violent king to reveal the glory of His coming kingdom? Well, I want to say this isn't the first time God has turned to the nations of the world to address His failing people. This isn't the first time God has used pagans to speak truth 
to His own who have fallen into sin. You know, one of the places where it clearly happened is, is in the patriarch father of Israel in Abraham. How God used the king of Egypt to say to, to Abraham, why are you lying to me? <laughs> why did you try and deceive me? And the rebuke came. But the fear of the Lord was upon him. And he did no harm to Abraham because God had warned him. Don't you harm him. Even though he sinned against you, don't you harm him. What a rebuke. Well, something of that nature I think is happening here. When God takes the very king who has conquered his people and has brought them into slavery and has devastated their land because now in chapter 2, Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. Israel is no more. And God gives unto the one who did all of this a dream. Not Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because, as I've said before, and I say it again, Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. God has raised him up for the discipline of Israel, for the discipline of His church But in raising him up, you think of Habakkuk, how God has said, even as he raised up the Chaldeans to come and bear the weight of God's discipline and judgments upon Israel, so he would also judge them as a people for their cruelty, for their violence, for their paganism, for their careless, careless actions against his people. And with this dream as God gives it to the one who is the king of the nations on earth. He gives it to Nebuchadnezzar because of anyone Nebuchadnezzar needed to know that his kingdom was going to be shaken. That his kingdom was not going to endure forever. And that he was not God. (laughs) Isn't that a wonderful message that we wish our kings and rulers would apprehend today. (laughs) That's the truth. But before getting to all of that, in some ways I've stepped into next week, I want us to consider chapter 2, verses 1 to 23, and understand that unrest of the world that just seems to breathe violence and how God's people get caught up in that. And it breeds, breathes violence because the world around us, and we need to know this again and again, dear Christians, this world that we live in has exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And, and, and that is clear to us today. Even as we think back on the history of the nation that we live in and think it was founded upon Christian principles, one of the things we have to understand in this day is that whatever history we may have had, today it is a nation pagan before God. 
It has exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Even though there might be believers in government positions in certain areas, and even though we might wish that there were more Christians in some of those government positions, we need to understand that our society has exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and that lie being that you don't have to worry about sin and death. You can be your own God determining what is good and evil for yourselves. The lie of Satan spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's still today. And and with that, we understand, first of all, looking at verses 1 to 3, we understand that such a world that has exchanged the truth of God for the lie is a world that is not at peace. (laughs) However much they might want to convey this to people, however much they want to convey this among the nations, that that they're working and laboring for the peace of all. This world is not at peace. And it can never be at peace. Isaiah 48.22 Isaiah 57.21 There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. And those who have exchanged the truth of God for the lie, they can never attain that troubled, free life that they so desire. And we see this with Nebuchadnezzar and his troubling dream. It, it has so troubled his soul that he has lost seat, sleep. And you know, this isn't the first time Well, maybe it is the first time here I'm thinking of the New Testament. But this isn't the only time that a king has become troubled with the message of the coming king and the kingdom of God on earth. Think to the birth of Jesus and the wise men from this very area. Wise men whom I do believe, without too much speculation, were descendants of Daniel's ministry in Babylon. They came from the east and they came to Jerusalem and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews and Herod sitting on that throne in all of his uh, narcissistic and megalomaniac power? It says there in Matthew chapter 2, and he was troubled. And when the king is troubled, all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. And the same thing's happening here. The king is troubled. A dream. He's possibly forgotten it, or maybe he really is remembering it and wants to make sure that his advisors aren't trying to pull the wool out from under his eyes. But he can't re- he, he isn't telling them what the dream is. But it's a dream that is so disturbing and ominous, he has lost sleep. And for whatever you may think of dreams that you have, again, I will say this, this much about it, is that dreams, I think, say something to us. We may not always understand uh, what they're reflecting upon, but especially in Nebuchadnezzar's day and, and in ancient times, dreams were seen as the way that God spoke to the people. And oh, you better understand them because, because God is, is saying something to you. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls all the spiritual wise men and and, and, and he comes with all the trouble that's weighing on him and he makes this impossible demand from them. <laughs> Tell me my dream. And they're saying, what? <laughs> 
No, no, you tell us your dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he said, no, tell me my dream. Because only then am I going to know that you're speaking truth to me about what it really means. See if you really have insight like you claim to have. But this impossible demand, you have to understand where it's coming from. It's coming from a megalomaniac. It's coming from a pagan heart that is seeking self-glory. It's coming from a man who in his rise to power and authority, which hasn't changed even today, is fearful and mistrustful of any who could oppose him. And his own fear produced this mistrust which makes this this impossible demand from people to fulfill. They're not wrong in saying, are you kidding, king? They wouldn't have said it in those ways. They They said, oh king, live forever. You're asking what is not possible of any man. But they're not saying it like that. They're afraid. (laughs) His fear, his trouble, his mistrust brought panic to all these counselors. And the more they tried to reason with him, the angrier angrier Nebuchadnezzar got. Right up to that final exchange, as you see in verses 10 to 13, he's he's saying, well, if you can't tell me my dream, you're dead. Arioch, kill them. (laughs) Imagine living like that. And it it shows you that even in these situations that that fear as well as as covetous greed really settled in the hearts that, that guided and counseled such kings. It's not an easy, easy walk in the park for them. But, but do you understand what's behind all of that? And that, this is where I think as Christians we need to have the wisdom. Why is Nebuchadnezzar acting like this? Well, he's got, first of all, an insecurity in life. <laughs> he has no confidence about his life and, and where he will be. Psalm 2 shows what the secular world is always trying to do. Those who have exchanged the truth of God for the lie, they are, as Psalm 2 says, breaking the bonds of the Lord and and breaking, uh, uh, casting away the cords so that they do not have to follow God. Their insecurity flows from this, this innate Hatred of God, we will not have Him to rule over us. And whether they realize it or not, what makes their insecurity in their paganism even greater is, as Psalm 2 says, is that God laughs at such people. (laughs) You think you can cast off my cords? You think you can break the bonds that I have set upon the nations? What does Isaiah 40 tell us about all of the nations of the world? If you were to gather them all together as much as you could and stand them before God, what does Isaiah 40 say about the nations of the world? They are but a 
drop in the bucket. And that, that understanding of that, a drop in the bucket, it's like a drop that falls into the bucket, it hits the bottom of a dry pail, and it disappears because it can't even stay together as a drop when it does that. That's what the nations of the world are before our great and holy God. When you understand that, yeah, they have a reason to be insecure. And it's whether they exercise the fear of the Lord or not, God's greatness is what brings an insecurity to their life. And Nebuchadnezzar's unrest is the world's unrest. You think again of what Augustine said man knows no rest until he is at rest with God. There is no peace for the wicked. Here's a man, Nebuchadnezzar, who lived for this world, who set his heart on attaining all that he could, and yet whose ambition was met in the end with his own mortality, fragility, and corruption. And, and it shows here in that he doesn't trust his advisors. He doesn't trust them because his own heart is insecure. Insecure with life. And what that insecurity does is it breeds this illogical conduct. Verse 9. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. And I've already told you what it is. You're going to be cut in pieces and your houses are going to be burned to an ash heap. What? <laughs> How is that a legitimate response to a people who can't do what you're asking them to do? It's illogical. We haven't seen any of that illogic at work today, have we? <laughs> Defund the police. Disband them. We heard a joke this, this afternoon. It says, you know, for all those people who want to disband the police, go up to them and show them the futility of it. Uh, I'll add a little bit to it. Punch them in the face, steal their wallet, and who are they going to call? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's illogical. What in the world makes you think that that's a legitimate response to the problems that we're having today? But that's what happens to the heart that has exchanged the truth of God for the lie, that is insecure in their own life. All the distrust spills out, not in simply asking for the impossible, but accusing them of dishonesty, disloyalty, and placing upon them his own distrust that his heart is wrestling with. How often have we seen that? I, I recall a pastor talking about dealing with a, a, a son of a, of a widow. And this son called the pastor just all, all angry and irritable that the church was taking his mother's fortune and, and uh, leaving her destitute. And, and uh, in the inquiry found out that the woman was tithing to the church and the son was doing her finances. And he was not a believer, but she was. And he was just frustrated that she was giving money uh, to the church. And, and he, he placed the distrust of his own heart upon 
that pastor calling him a thief, calling him uh, a con man and all of these things that his own heart really was filled with himself. And isn't that what we do in, in our abandonment of God and the truth is whatever we feel and desire for ourselves and aren't, maybe aren't attaining to and whatever fears that we have, we set them upon everybody else and we say that's what they're like. And that's why you have this, this illogical conduct where, where these groups are acting out the very accusations that they label and set upon other people. When they use the the labels homophobic, racist, accusing others of being hateful and extremist, and you look at their actions and say, well, isn't that what you're doing? (laughs) And they don't see it, do they? Because they're blinded by the lie that they have committed themselves unto. They're being the very persons they describe. And when, when King Nebuchadnezzar levels these charges against the Chaldeans, he's just exposing who he is in his own heart. And not only does, it breed, does that insecurity breed this illogical conduct, it brings forth this irrational hostility. Overreaction. Overkill. Literally, you look in verse 12. The king was very angry, very furious, and gave the command, destroy all the wise men. Kill every one of them. Even those whom I haven't called into my court to give me counsel. I'm done with them. Get rid of them all. Isn't isn't that irrational? Not not just illogical. It's it's a hostility and a, a fury that just flows. And again, why such fury? It's because Nebuchadnezzar was in conflict with God. You have to understand that underlying enmity. It is against God himself. But such a weak and frail man could never exercise his fury against God, he takes the next best thing, those who are created in his image. And I want you to see that that's the conflict of every generation. That's the conflict of every person who has exchanged the truth of God for the lie. That's the conflict that every person who has an unwillingness to have God be the God and Lord of his life, that's all they're left with. (laughs) God has revealed, and and in some measure you can sense that Nebuchadnezzar already realizes this. God has revealed to him that that kingdom of Babylon is going to decay, that only the kingdom of God is going to last. And Nebuchadnezzar hated that thought. (laughs) It's as one man said, uh, quoting Frederick Nietzsche. You, You guys know Nietzsche, you know, and his philosophy of humanity. And he did. He hated God. <laughs> and he said this. He said, "There cannot be a God because if there were one, I could not believe that it was not I." <laughs> oh, the audacity of man's heart, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar. And 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 if we dig deep enough, we're going to see that that's often the heart of many who rule nations today. It, it comes out. Power corrupts. Absolute power 
corrupts absolutely. I don't believe that last phrase. Because God is absolute power. And He is in no way corrupt. But these who exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What do we read in Romans 1? What kind of people do they become? They become backbiters. They become haters of God, violent, proud boasters, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Doesn't that describe Nebuchadnezzar? And in many ways, doesn't that describe the generation of people that we see acting out today? Now, having said all of that before you, we come to verses 14 to 23. And I ask this question as the second thing that that we are considering this evening. And that is, what then is the godly response in such times? How do we meet these times? How do we, as Paul would say in Ephesians 5, how do we we redeem these times that we live in? Because the days are evil. (laughs) We begin by seeing something in here in verses 14 to 23. We begin by seeing that God did not keep His own people from that judgment. Daniel and his friends, and not only them, but the other groups of the children of Israel that had been brought in, some of the king's descendants, some of the nobles, those who were conditioned to be the advisors to the king, they're all lumped into that. (laughs) They all face this same death sentence. But notice how Daniel responds. He responds with a deep, surety and confidence in the sovereignty of God. I think in many ways, Daniel exhibits for us in reality what Paul commends us in 2 Timothy 1.7 when he says that we are never to be ashamed of the Gospel, we're never to be fearful of what men can do to us, but because... Not because they can't be hateful and mean and hostile toward us, but he says, we're not behaving in this way because God has not given us a spirit of fear. What has He given us? He's given us the Holy Spirit who brings to us power and love and self-control or soundness of mind. And you see Daniel here exercising that, understanding the sovereignty of God over all things. Daniel did not speak in fear, in anger, or in ignorance. Those are the common responses. Let's apply it to a circumstance of our day because I've seen it in in Christian social media and perhaps I might even uh, step on some toes here this evening. I don't know. But this whole issue of wearing face masks in public places. What what I have seen coming from Christians in in their responses is not one of, well, you know, what, what's the big deal? What, what about compliance to these things? How, how, does, it, how does it harm us? It, it's a lot of anger, and I dare to say even ignorance. How dare they restrict our freedom? And when, when you see some of the things that have 
unfolded in in the ungodly world outside of the Christian church where people are are even killing store attendants because they're not allowed to get in without a face mask. The, the, The response is itself one of illogical conduct and irrational hostility. Daniel, in in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, in the wisdom of the Lord's promises, in faith in a faithful God, he, he responds in a spirit of power and love and sound mind. He exercises a prudence that you see in verse 14. With counsel and wisdom, he no doubt went and and found out why this is happening and then comes back to his, his brothers and says, what should we do? Well, let's seek the Lord in this. Let's not just simply go out and give my opinion of why I think this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing it, but let's seek the Lord in this. And let's remember the hope that we have because they were faced with a death sentence. (laughs) You know, I, I want to get back to the face mask for a moment. We're faced with putting on a mask and wearing an inconvenient thing around our face when we talk with each other. He's faced with a death sentence. But he's facing that in hope. In some ways, again, I'm pulling into the New Testament and, and drawing it to Daniel, but I, I can't help but, but express this truth that he exercised the hope of Romans 8.28 that all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His promise, His purpose, and and, and you think about Romans 8, 28, that well-known verse, all things are working together for good. Do you believe that about our times and seasons right now? That God is working these things for the good of His church, the good of His people, for the good of your life, even though you may not see it. What is the reality upon which that promise of Romans eight twenty-eight is established? That promise of Romans 8.28 is established upon the salvation that Jesus Christ has gained for you. Because what are the next verses? Because whom He foreknew, He predestined. Whom He predestined, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. We know God is our Savior. (laughs) I'm not looking to any government of this land or of the nations of this world to be our Savior. God is our Savior. And He is the ruler of the kings of the nations. And in soundness of mind, I will rest upon the salvation that Christ has gained. I know my Father's at work glorifying me. Daniel, I don't have a doubt, was looking to the Lord in such a way. And and he shows that as he moves on to that spirit of power. What does he do in verses 17 and 18? What what do we read him saying with his companions? 
Let's pray. I mean, really, what do Christians have that this world doesn't have? We have access to the throne of grace. And you look at the focus of their prayers. They were seeking the mercies from God, from the God of heaven. Isn't that interesting how that's worded? And do you know why I believe it's worded that way? Because Daniel was still remembering that though the temple had been destroyed, though that which was built up to, to magnify the ministry of the servant of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself in the midst of God's people. Though that was destroyed, yet He knew in truth that that was but a copy of the reality that was in heaven waiting for Him. And I have no trouble believing because I think Daniel was such a godly man that he was remembering The words of Solomon. Listen to it. When Solomon dedicated the temple. Because we're, again, piece these things together. What do we read? What did Daniel do three times a day from the very beginning of his exile in Babylon? He got up, opened his window, turned to the east. He turned to where the temple was. He prayed. And even here, I have no doubt he's thinking of this. Solomon's word, when the temple was dedicated and Solomon prayed this, he says, and when your people sin against you and there is no one who does not sin against you and you become angry with them and you deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and they repent and make supplication to you in the land where you took them captive and they come saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave their fathers when they pray to the city which you have chosen and to the temple which I have built for your name verse 49 of 1 Kings 8 then here in heaven hear them Hear in heaven your dwelling place. Hear their prayer, their supplication, and maintain their cause. My friends, that's our power. Daniel responded in such a way. Let us pray. A prayer of humility, contrition, confession, but a prayer of faith to the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon us, O God. And the last thing that you see him doing, and again, I think a response of us, prudence, prayer, praise. Verses 19 to 23. And here again is this spirit of love to God. And look what he prays. He praises God, verse 20, for his wisdom and might. Verse 21, for His sovereign governing. Verse 22, for the revelation that He brings from His Word and the light that He gives to His people. 
I think in many ways Daniel shows us that as God responded to their prayers and gave them understanding of what they were going through as His people in a land where they were being held captive, you're seeing a heart that is expressing worship and love to God. And that, that is something as part of their prayers. They were not simply focused on their pro- problem. They weren't simply focused on, on the hardship and the trial that was before them, the threat of death. They were focused on the glory of God. And that is in likewise what our faith is to be about. Not simply demonstrated by fervent prayers when troubles come our way, but much more. Our prayers are to contain this worship of God for whatever graces He's pleased to show us in these times of trouble where our heart is showing itself at peace with God by worshiping Him. As one person said, a lack of worship in troubled times is a faithless response to God's mercies. We trust God. We turn to God for wisdom and help. And the promise from God is the opposite of what He holds for the wicked. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give? And it's to that end that we see Daniel thanking God for these troubles. (laughs) I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've made known to us the king's demands. My dear friends, you need to know the Lord. You need to know your Savior. You need to know the one who has been acclaimed by God as King of Kings. You need to know the one who has said to the servant, you are not greater than the Master. You need to know these things, that you do not live in a spirit of fear, that you do not live in the fear of men, but you walk in the fear of the Lord and you walk in the spirit of power and of love and self-control because you are resting in the peace that the Savior promises those who seek Him. These are troubled times. But our God is greater than these times. And we trust in Him. Let's pray.